Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I'm Liz Lenevy, and today I'm joined by Erica Slater, Megan Crow, and Elizabeth McNulty. We also have a special guest here. Everyone, I'm sure, knows her well. She lives rent-free in all of our heads, and that is imposter syndrome. And in preparing for today's episode, I was just doing a little little Googling on imposter syndrome, trying to learn more about you know, what other writers and psychologists have said about this. And I actually found the original research paper where the imposter phenomenon is first described and it's first coined. And that was actually back in 1978 by two women, Pauline Rose Clance and Suzanne Imes. And in reading this paper, and it's very short, it's only about nine pages, and the title of it is The Imposter Phenomenon in High-Achieving Women, Dynamics and Therapeutic Intervention. I thought that would be a great place to start. And I just want to read the abstract because I think that that pretty well sums up what we're going to be talking about today and what this particular imposter syndrome is if you're not familiar. And so the abstract reads, The term imposter phenomenon is used to designate an internal experience of intellectual phonies, which appears to be particularly prevalent and intense among a select sample of high-achieving women. Certain early family dynamics and later introjection of societal sex role stereotyping appear to contribute significantly to the development of the imposter phenomenon. Despite outstanding academic and professional accomplishments, women who experience the imposter phenomenon, persists in believing that they are really not bright and have fooled anyone who thinks otherwise. Numerous achievements, which one might expect to provide ample object evidence of superior intellectual functioning, do not appear to affect the imposter belief. Four factors, which contribute to the maintenance of imposter feelings over time, are explored. Therapeutic approaches found to be effective in helping women change the imposter self-concept are described. And that's what the remaining pages of the article go into is sort of their investigation into the imposter phenomenon and who they interviewed. And I thought it was really interesting that of the groups of women that they interviewed, the very first one they listed were female lawyers. The other part of the paper that I do want to point out, though, is the little footnote at the bottom of page one, which reads, the question has been raised as to whether or not men experience this phenomenon. In our clinical experience, we have found that the phenomenon occurs with much less frequency in men and that when it does occur, it is with much less intensity. We have received mixed opinions from male colleagues with whom we have consulted. The attribution research findings summarized later imply that the imposter phenomenon would be found less frequently in men than in women. We have noticed the phenomenon in men who appear to be more in touch with their, quote, feminine qualities. This clinical observation needs to be researched. So I read this research paper yesterday and was blown away by how much I identified with so much described within the paper. And I shared it with Erica and Megan and Elizabeth, and I'm curious about your thoughts as well. Honestly, I read the abstract and I was, as Elizabeth said before this started recording, I was kind of triggered by it. I was like, oh no, this paper knows who I am. And I think it's so interesting that you pulled out the actual research about this. And it's just a really 
kind of worrisome concept to think about because, you know, we are all women who have achieved difficult things and knowing that the problem is not giving yourself enough credit for that and that society, you're actually kind of learning that from messages that you get from society is a really disappointing setback for women who have worked really hard to be doing what they're doing. So I, like the three of you, was pretty shook by this article. (laughs) It hit me hard too. And I think for me, what particularly stuck out about this research paper was the origins portion because I think imposter syndrome has kind of been a buzzy term recently. So I've been familiar with it and been like, yes, that definitely describes me. But I'd never put much thought into why this happens. So the origins part of this paper struck me because it describes basically two different groups of how imposter syndrome starts. And I kind of read these thinking I was going to fall into one or the other. And I kind of was like, oh, I have experienced both of these in different aspects of my life. So the first group is people who are made to feel as the less intelligent member of the family growing up and then work really hard to overcompensate for that and yet still feel like they don't live up despite however much achievement they've gotten that they still don't feel worthy of it. And then the other group is people who are made to feel superior right off the bat. And they're always told how great they are and they experience all this validation, but they feel fraudulent or they feel like they don't live up to the praise. And so I feel like I've experienced both of these in different points of my life. I think growing up, I was never made to feel like the less intelligent child or anything by any means, but my brother did go to a quote unquote better school than I did. I was kind of insecure about the fact that he went to such a great school and I always tried to really overcompensate for that. And then I went to law school and I always wanted to bring it to the attention of him that, you know, I'm in law school and all this stuff. And so I think that was kind of the first instance that I felt this first group. And then in the second group, I started to feel this way in law school, I think, because I was kind of dubbed the quote unquote smart friend And I never felt, maybe because of my prior experience, that I lived up to the expectation of the quote-unquote smart friend. So I think both of these I've identified with at various points in my life. And so that's what really struck me about reading this research paper. I also was uh, very intrigued about the origins portion, but I'm pretty familiar with uh, where my relationship with imposter syndrome first developed. I'm in the second camp of the women, or I guess the people who've always been told they could do anything, they could achieve anything, and I always believe that. I firmly still believe that. But I think when I came to St. Louis to go to law school at WashU was the first time I'd really been surrounded by a bunch of super brilliant people, and I no longer felt like the smart friend, as Megan would put it. So I think that that was really difficult for me and I became to feel like sort of a fraud and when are these people going to find out that I don't belong here and reading through this article it was kind of difficult just because I could identify with so many things throughout it and I had never really put all of the pieces together so to say but I found it to be sort of helpful because it does give some advice. And I, I guess I've realized now that I could probably use a decent amount of therapy to uh, work through my imposter syndrome. It was so interesting for me reading 
through this paper and now having talked to you all today because it makes me think about one of our prior episodes and specifically the episode on ambition. And is ambition a dirty word? And so when we talk about imposter syndrome, I think it's important to remember that it's not just an internalized feeling, but it's also externalized. So maybe focusing on the internalized. Where does internalized imposter syndrome come from? And it's interesting that we're talking about how people are putting pressures on us and, and that's why we maybe feel like a fraud. And, and I have the same experience as both of you where I did very well academically in high school. I did very well in college and then I got to law school and suddenly I wasn't getting straight A's anymore. Suddenly it, it became much harder to get an A. I remember my mom even commenting to me one time about you're not getting the same GPA you got when you were younger. And I had to explain to her, yeah, it's, it's a hell of a lot harder now. But even though I tried to come up with that explanation, it still made me feel like maybe I didn't belong there. I was reading a couple articles that you didn't pass around about this. And I was coming up with several articles that said there's basically two types of ways that imposter syndrome expresses itself in broad general categories. And one is the I'm a fraud phenomenon and the other is an I'm just lucky phenomenon. I know I personally can think of examples of both in ways that when I've felt I'm a fraud, I don't belong here. And then other ways where I kind of recognize my success or achievement, and but then I blame it on external factors. It, I was just lucky. And how much of that might be just being a woman and not wanting to appear cocky there's certainly a level of confidence I think our male colleagues can get away with and will not be considered socially unacceptable that we can't and that might contribute to it. So you say things like, oh, I'm just lucky or whatever you want to attribute it to other than your own personal success and abilities. And you do that enough times that I think it gets to the point where you're no longer just saying that to make everyone else comfortable with your success. You're also starting to internalize that and say, you know, maybe actually I am just lucky. Maybe this is just purely dumb luck. And then it's a question of, well, when is my luck going to run out? Yeah. And I think about how this has manifested for me over the years. It's kind of changed throughout my career. Unfortunately, it's not a linear thing. Like as you continue practicing, you know, you get more and more confidence and you know, all of a sudden the imposter syndrome kind of melts away. I'm here to tell you that after a decade of practice, I still experience this. And quite frankly, after coming back just recently from maternity leave, I've had trouble kind of getting back into lockstep with everything. I feel like it knocked my confidence a little bit. Maternity leave was really hard for me initially, just having some struggles with my daughter. And it really knocked my confidence personally. And, you know, am I doing this right? Am I being a good mom? Am I making the right decisions? This is really hard. I had to dig down and really find some grit to get through some tough issues at the beginning of my maternity leave. And coming back from that and then completely switching modes again, I've kind of had a lack of confidence lately, which has like developed into more imposter syndrome and some things that I thought that I had kind of overcome. And now, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I'm among all these really great attorneys. Do I belong here? Do I fit in? And I know that that is just like my head talking to me. There's nothing about having been away from maternity leave from the firm's perspective or my colleague's perspective that has diminished 
what type of attorney I am or what my practice is. And that would be terribly sad if it was. But for the type of person I am and so type A and, you know, I just kind of charge through things, taking that step back for three months was really tough for me. And coming back and getting things back on track has been really hard. At our firm, we are good about marketing and doing things like applying for or nominating each other for certain awards and things like that. I've won some legal awards that, you know, if I sit here and think about it, like I'm really proud of. And I think when I have talked to family members about those things or someone has given me accolades about that, I kind of had this feeling of like, well, you know, that's just my firm. We're just good at like nominating people, you know, thinking that I didn't earn that award on my merit or that I got that award because they saw what firm I was at and it wasn't based on my application or whatever the case may be. And that's one thing that I had to realize and stop doing. So that's one way it's manifested throughout my career. But when I think about it, what you were saying, Megan, about the origins and kind of how you grew up in your family, I adopted this phrase that I heard kind of over and over again in my family, which was that my sister was the book smart one and I was the street smart one. And I really realized that I have always internalized that. She's a professional editor. She went to grad school. You know, we're both kind of in similar places in our careers. And for all intents and purposes, there's no difference with our, you know, intellectual abilities. We do different things, but we both kind of come at it from the same intellectual abilities. But I've always regarded her as the smart one. Although, of course, I need a lot of intellect to do what we're doing and to have gotten through law school and all that. And also when thinking about growing up, as many of us probably relate to, it was so satisfying or self-affirming to get a certain grade in school. Liz, like you said, when you get to law school, you know, once you get graded on a curve with a lot of other smart people, that kind of changes. But it was really difficult for me when I graduated from school and was no longer like getting that affirmation and being able to get a grade and trying to figure out how I measure my own achievement or my own self-worth if I couldn't see it on a piece of paper as a grade. And that's something that I've really struggled with over the past 10 years since I've been out of school. I'm sure that that is a common feeling for many attorneys because we are in a field that requires so much education and the education is so competitive because of that curve. You're not just trying to do your best work. You're trying to do your best work and make sure it's better than 50 of your classmates. So it naturally sets up that feeling. And if you don't achieve that and you don't live up to that, then it is an immediate feeling of, well, I'm not good enough. I don't belong here. I'm not smart enough. And so that's certainly something I had to struggle with with my 1L year. But we're focusing so much on internalized imposter syndrome, which is completely valid. And I think we all have experiences of it. But it's interesting to me that so many of us have brought up siblings because I think that that is sort of where a lot of this originally starts. And it's easy for families and parents to sort of divide your kids up based on what their skills are. And I have a sister in high school and she's constantly getting compared to me. And it's not fair, especially because there is such an age gap there too. And so I've had so much more time to make achievements that she hasn't gotten to yet. She just hasn't lived enough life yet. But she told me, what's the point of competing with you? I'm never going to be able to live up to mom's expectations. 
it was heartbreaking to hear her say that, but I think it's a good example of we really need to talk each other's strengths up and not as a competition, but to build people's confidence up. And I think that that attitude that maybe we should have in the home can also translate to the workplace. But this is all internalized imposter syndrome. So let's talk about the externalized imposter syndrome, which is not our fault and is attributable to things that are out of our control, like our age, our gender, our race. I think we've all got stories of walking into a courtroom or walking into an office ready to take a deposition and someone assuming that you are the court reporter or assuming that you are the secretary or sometimes if if you're still young enough, a law student. And that is an immediate blow to your self-confidence and your feeling of worth. And so I'm curious about the group's experiences with externalized imposter syndrome and how that has contributed to how you then view yourself. I've always told all of you as you come up on age 30 to not see that as a bad thing because I say that I couldn't wait to turn 30 because I felt more established and more legitimate in our profession. And now hearing you define external imposter syndrome, that is just a symptom of that. Any of my friends listening to this podcast will know that I always say, I think I'm going to thrive in my 30s. And I think it's because being in the field that I am, have always felt, I think, most insecure about my age and experience level. I went straight through from high school to college to law school, where I think a lot of my law school classmates and a lot of my colleagues maybe took some time off in between. And I was told in law school OCI process that you know, make yourself seem older, make yourself seem like you have more life experience than you have, because that is more attractive to employers. They want more mature, established people. So age and my young age has always been something I've been personally insecure about. So turning 30 has never seemed like a bad thing to me. It, to me, I think is going to take away maybe some of that imposter syndrome. I think that age is probably my biggest one as well. I don't really consider like being a woman. I think it's a great thing. So I don't really consider that a weakness at all or, you know, contribute to imposter syndrome. Although, you know, maybe if I were a man, I wouldn't have it, but whatever. <laughs> less likely. According to the research, you'd be less likely. Right. To have. But I digress. I think that the age and it because it goes hand in hand with experience and having worked at the same firm from law school to being a regular attorney like law clerk to attorney that age and experience kind of added to imposter syndrome just because one day i was a law clerk and the next day i was an attorney here but no one really saw that shift obviously and i had a hard time so i think that that was kind of tricky for me and like kind of added to this whole imposter syndrome thing, at least. But I agree, as soon as I get gray hair, I'll probably get a little more respect and maybe I won't have to deal with imposter syndrome so much. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear that 30 is the magical number where people get their confidence because I turned 30 last month and I just would love to know when it hits. (laughs) There's nothing special about for my birthday turning 30, but I do notice that every year I get a little bit more confident. And I feel like the imposter syndrome starts to fade away. You know, it's, it's chipping away, but it's still there quite a bit. I'm just hoping that the older I get, the more it falls away. And, and if you're lucky, age is just a temporary condition. So, you know, maybe it is just an age thing. But right now, I still feel it very often in my practice. Now I'm, I'm starting to think about, you know, once I 
have children if I go on maternity leave, what that experience is going to be like for me. So, you know, Erica, thank you now, for providing now that I've perspective. scared you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I feel like I have to channel Amy a little bit because I feel like if she was here, she'd be encouraging us all to not have these feelings, to take ownership of our achievements and to be working actively on kind of stomping out imposter syndrome. But I have to say, and probably all of you had this experience as well, when you actually research what this is, I mean, we've all laughed about it before, right? But it really does seem like something that we have to actively work to kind of change our thinking. Is there anything that you guys can think of that has helped you overcome feelings of imposter syndrome, whether it's in the moment or something long term? Well, I think that kind of doing the research for this episode and kind of reading more about it and putting a name to a face, so to say, just like, oh, that's what that is. It has nothing to do with my actual merits, anything that I can actually do. It's just bullshit in my mind. So just kind of to overcome that, it's not really real, I think kind of helps you realize that it seems to, to me, correlate with confidence. Like the imposter syndrome is just kind of not a lack of confidence, but just not being sure of what I'm doing. But I think that that's just imposter syndrome kind of playing tricks on you, I guess. It's almost a double-edged sword because sometimes the exact same things that make me feel like I have imposter syndrome are the same things that chip away at it. And what I mean by that is Liz, when introducing this episode, had asked us to think of some examples of times that we've felt imposter syndrome. And the first thing that came to my mind is getting this job and sitting at this table with all of you guys every week doing this podcast because I just feel so lucky to be around such badass women. Can I say badass on the podcast? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> and actually, a friend of mine who listened to the podcast for the first time last week texted me about it and was like, oh my gosh, I love you guys. I think Amy is my new hero. And my first reaction, my response to her was, I admire the people I work with so much, it's stupid. I am not worthy to be sitting around at this table with them. And she was like, shut up, you obviously are, you wouldn't be there. For that reason, like being here is somewhat a source of imposter syndrome, but then sitting here and getting validation from you guys. I know a couple episodes ago, Amy like said good job and I was like, oh my gosh, I am worthy of being here. And so it's just like, it's a confidence thing. Like it's okay to feel that way being in a room with people who you really admire and they can also give you the courage to feel more confident in yourself. Well, and that's so funny too from my perspective to hear you say that because so I was on maternity leave listening to you guys all put out season three and the first episode of season three is Meet Megan and I listened to that episode and you and I knew each other from you clerking here, of course, but you didn't clerk for me. And I knew you had started. I was really excited about that. You got your parking card and access to the Heels in the Courtroom text thread, which is a very important part of our practice. But I listened to that episode and I was like, wow, she's got it. Like not just for the podcast, but you really spoke like from a place of maturity. And I was really impressed. So that was my impression. And it's so funny to hear you say like you, you know, kind of had this feeling of imposter syndrome because I'm sitting here like, hot damn, we're good to go. She's rolling. <laughs> Megan, just to echo what Erica said, one, you absolutely belong here. Don't ever doubt that. But two, 
having been in the recording studio when you did your first episode, it just seemed so effortless. And it made me think about the first recording we did, which was rough, y'all. It was so rough. It was rough. fun, though. It was fun, but we did not know what we were doing. And you just jumped in. You were like, oh, is this, is this my headset? And you put the headset on. You were good to go. So you absolutely belong here. But I think that this conversation that we're having is really my big takeaway about how to combat imposter syndrome is by talking to other people about it and being open about it. Because I think, especially for attorneys, we have this notion that we have to be confident at all times. It's how you get a job. It's how you get a client. It's how you convince a jury is you have to seem confident. And one line that I read in particular, and it was out of a Harvard Business Review article that I sent around, is that confidence is not competence. You can be confident all day long, and I think we know tons of people who are extremely confident but are not particularly competent. So it's important, one, to separate those two. But two, when you're talking about it and sharing your experiences and hearing other people, that is the best way to realize, oh, this really is not something that I should be worrying so much about. And so for me, Erica, you sharing your stories, because I look up to you as a mentor, and I think you come off so confident, but also I know you have the confidence to back it up and you're very smart and you care about your clients. And I would never look at you as someone who shared the same condition of imposter syndrome as me. It's melting away right now. (laughs) (laughs) But that's also important twofold then to not only chip away at your own imposter syndrome, but then to remind the people around you, in particular, the women around you and why it's important to have that community. Because the way that you also start to dissolve your own imposter syndrome is by other people affirming it. That's the external chipping away at the imposter syndrome. So I look at the women at our firm and you all are so smart and so talented and care so much. And it makes me want to be better. And I feel like I should tell you all how great you are more often, because if this is something that we are all struggling with, and maybe I didn't realize it so much, then this is a good wake up call for me of I can help my colleagues just like they can help me. So I'm going to need you all to give me compliments right now. now. Well, Liz, now you're 30. So, you know, it's just going to melt away, too. I was recently reminded by my wife when I'm sure I was complaining about not feeling very confident being back at work. She reminded me that I keep a rainy day folder in my office. And anytime I even get an email that says good job or a nice letter from someone who I admire, whatever it is, I put it in that folder. And I haven't gone back to it very often. Part of making it special to me is that it goes in that folder. But I really actually opened it the other day. And it helped me kind of connect a little bit with myself when I do feel more confident and when I do feel comfortable projecting more confidence. I think the best thing about being an attorney and particularly being in this group of attorneys that we work with is that I see so much confidence and it is backed up with competence, which can even probably kind of add to the imposter syndrome. Anyway, I feel like we are working with a really elite group and that's judging on a curve too. I feel like many of our attorneys are at the top of their game and that's who our environment is, that's who we're surrounded with, that's who we're comparing ourselves to. So giving yourself a little bit of credit that, you know, you're comparing yourself to what I think is the best of the best at what we do is something to keep in mind too. It's 
funny that you say that because I had to give a presentation recently and I was by far the youngest person on the panel. Oh, yes, you were. I saw a picture of that panel. Oh, yeah. And I remember one, this particular presentation, it goes on every year. And one of the panelists came up to me and he said, you know, I've been doing this since 1982. And just for reference, I was born in 1991. (laughs) I didn't think I did a very good job on this panel, just personally speaking, critiquing myself. And I was comparing myself to these older attorneys who have been doing this for literally decades. I was explaining this to my husband about how I thought I didn't do a particularly good job. And I had to stop myself and say, but you know, now that I think about it, they've had 40 years to perfect this. I've had one. So maybe I should back off myself a little bit and he kind of looked at me and he's like that's some good self-reflection and maybe that's the kind of wisdom that comes with being 30 so (laughs) I think that another way to start to get rid of imposter syndrome is just by being a little easier on ourselves being willing to forgive ourselves and keep context in mind and remembering for me I have to remember I'm not John Simon yet I'm not Amy Gunn yet but I can get there so I think I'm going to work on being nicer to myself. In addition to being nicer to my colleagues, I'm going to try to be nicer to myself. I am sorry that Mary and Amy missed this episode because I just kind of want to bring them all in for a group hug. I really want to thank you guys for being so vulnerable about talking about your own experiences today. And hopefully by doing that, our listeners are relating and connecting that it's not just you. It's not strange (laughs) to have those feelings. And there are things that you can do to help get past those feelings. So so they're not a distraction, really. I mean, if you think about it, it would be so much nicer to not have that distraction of feeling like, you know, you're an imposter or fraud or whatever it is. So hopefully our listeners will have taken away something from this episode. And if you do feel like you have imposter syndrome and you need to find that community please reach out to us. I think we're a great community, the Heels in the Courtroom gals. And you can do that by emailing us at comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. Remember, new episodes drop every Wednesday. And thank you so much for listening today. And thank you so much to Erica and Megan and Elizabeth for this wonderful free therapy session for me. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and subscribe today 